This podcast contains explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I knew it, I'd fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion, Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 58 people are murdered every day. These are just some of those stories. I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. My name is Paul Vivian Llewellyn. I'm a journalist curious about Africa's killers, criminals and the cops who catch them. Joining me to discuss crime on the continent, as always, is Jared Labuskakni, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is the profiler. Today, Gerard, we are talking about a man by the name of Jose de Silva. And I'll kick off with a little quote from an interview that you conducted with him, which is going to form really the body of this episode. So a bit of a special episode where we're actually going to get to hear from the killer himself and from segments of of an interview that you conducted with him uh, while he was incarcerated. So I play this game. I play this game that I lie about my name. Mm. I gave a fake name, and I got a, a, a number that you can't trace. You know, and I, I kind of, I just wanted to see, you know, if I play my game, you know, can I get caught out or not? You know, so you know, I had this lady out here. And I told them that my name's Lionel Monty, and this is my telephone number. And I even explained to where my place is, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, she looked around and, you know, told me how she's going to give me a quote for furniture and it. You know, and I thought, gee, you, you're quite convincing. You can, you can invite you a can woman, invite to, your woman house, to your house and they, they believe, you. believe you. you know? And ultimately, it was this that emboldened him to commit his crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about Jose de Silva how did you first come to hear of this case or come across this case yeah so this case is for me a, a very interesting one for a couple of reasons um, firstly it was my first ever crime scene that I attended I had joined the police in the 1st of October 2001 and this was early in uh, the following month November 2001 so my very first crime scene I'm new to the game never seen a dead body before etc um, so that is the one interesting thing. Okay. Um, and then, of course, again, the, the fact that the, I got this, the interview that I did was literally, I think, it spanned from he was caught on the 8th of January. Okay. Um, I was, I'm interviewing him in his house in the very bathroom where he committed the actual murder that we're going to get. What into. year was this? Uh, 2001. Yes. Okay. So it was started, I started interviewing him on the night of the 8th of January, and I think we finished at 1 or 2 in the morning of the 9th of January in okay. that bathroom where he, where he killed her about just 140 minutes. Um, so the interview we're going to hear, you are actually speaking to him in the bathroom where he committed the crime? Yep. Okay. Okay. So uh, with certain tactics and how I went about the interview based on what I saw at the crime scene, how I approached him that night, um, you know, without jumping ahead, you know, I I looked at the crime scene. I thought, what does this tell me about the person's personality? I then dressed a particular way when I went to go interview him. Um, You know, although it was already late at night, I, you know, put on my 
nice pants, suit, you know, a nice button-up shirt, a tie, and a, these sort of silver pilot's briefcases that okay, looks know. kind yeah. of fancy. Yeah. Uh, nothing inside except like a notepad. Okay. But because um, my deduction from the crime scene where this is going to be guys very neat, very particular, meticulous, etc. And I thought when I, if I want to get him to talk to me, um, I want to be convey the image of somebody he could perhaps relate to and that okay. kind of did work out and later on when we interviewed him a few years later that kind of worked in our favor again now we can get into that uh, okay well. just um before we get into the actual listening to some of the segments of the interview um i mean this is the first crime scene you've you've attended and you've seen this this dead body how do you compare your kind of emotional reaction to that scene to the Gerard sitting here today. I mean, can you can you just put yourself back in that moment for a second and just kind of talk to us about how you were feeling? What was your reaction to that crime scene? Sure, personally, um, it's a long time ago. Um, and you're a lot more jaded, and um, yeah. you've seen a lot more um, death and and destruction since then. I don't think I. It was in a way surreal. You know, it's, it's literally was standing on the edge of a busy highway. Mm. This body's lying face down. Um, completely naked, literally her fingertips, I think, are touching the, touching the tar of the highway. So okay. clearly, obviously, saying the guy wanted the, the body to be discovered. So in a way, it was surreal. It didn't feel like it was a, a, a dead uh, dead body, you know, and there's, you know, you'd think there's hundreds of cops around. Nope, there was, you know, I think five or six people, you know, around at the time, the crime scene person, yeah. me, I think my colleague, Elmarie Myberg, was still at the unit. Um you know, so it's kind of not what you're expecting based on what you see on TV. Yeah. Adrenaline. Cars are still driving by, you know. Um, probably there's no there's no sort of queue of vehicles slowly driving by. Um, sure. They probably can't even see what we're really up to. Okay. So that was, again, just like this sort of surreal. And I, and I realized very early on, I mean, I have a lot to learn. So I kind of shut up and listened and watched and s- sort of did what everybody else did. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I think more nervous than going to do something wrong than okay. I am worried about too much that there's a dead body. There. Okay. We're going to go to the crimes. We're going to start off with um, from a, a portion of the interview where, where um, you're kind of getting into the crime and talking about the, his actual first murder. And he's talking about his actual first murder. Can you just set the scene up to that point? Just contextualize um, Jose yeah. and his kind of evolution as a as a criminal up to this point that that we're going to introduce the we're going to play the first clip of the interview. Yeah, so he was about thirty five, if I recall correctly, at the time when he committed this act and, and when he was arrested. And like I said, he was arrested very quickly. I mean, it was barely a month, uh, month, month and a half, six weeks before he was actually caught. So he'd lived pretty much grown up most of his life in Pretoria and Pretoria West. He went to a school called Burger Wright Primary School, which I'd never heard of before. Okay. Um, after high school, he had gone to because he was a dual citizen, Portuguese, South African national. He just he had to do national service in one of the two countries. So in South Africa in those days, there was still the compulsory national service for white males. He decided to go do his national service in Portugal. Uh, he completed it, according to him, successfully. But he couldn't really adjust to living in Portugal afterwards, and he came back to South Africa. So his father had a big construction company or a construction company here in South Africa. Um, kind of felt, you know, he didn't want to study after school. Um, he kind of had a negative, I think, a neg- bit of a negative view of himself because he didn't have a very good ex- life um, relation with his father, according to him. Okay. Um, I suppose in a way he said, I kind of was cutting my own nose despite, you know, despite my face by not really doing something. Uh, with my life, but he did in the end become a um, uh, project manager for a networking installing company. So he actually had a good salary, 
You know, he was driving a BMW. You know, if that's a, one side of measure of success, he was staying yeah. in a nice place, the place where the murder actually occurred, in Centurion. Um, I won't say I don't won't say exactly where, but it's not too far from the Gauteng train station. For those of you just a point of reference, um, and was doing quite well in his company. You know, he'd worked for a couple of years in Johannesburg. Didn't like it there. Didn't get didn't get along with the boss on that side. And he asked to be transferred back to Pretoria. And he'd been staying in this particular place where he committed the murder for only for I think two months. Uh, prior to the actual murder uh, taking taking place, yeah. relationship wise, he says he didn't he, he didn't really ever feel even at school that he fitted in with the crowd. He wasn't one of the boys. He didn't like to do the things that other boys did. So he kind of was always described himself as a loner, even in his adult relationships at work. You know, he wouldn't be the guy going out with drinking drinking with everybody after work. You know, he would kind of be the loner. One or two relationships, um, bad experience in 1996 which is about five years prior to this where I think he was probably expecting this might develop into a marriage and then it kind of didn't okay. so I suppose again this sort of re- rejection by females yeah. and at the time of the murders he wasn't seeing anybody okay and started playing what he refers to as a game so so the murder was if we recall was in November of 2001 yes the year before in June 2000 he had a venous bypass which means he was at home for two months Obviously, he had surgery. Uh, he had to wear a big orthopedic sock over his whole leg. He picked up weight. And I think that kind of knocked his sort of self-image. Um, he kind of said, you know, I, don't, I didn't think that anybody would ever sort of love me or no woman would be interested in me. I was now overweight. I had this big sock. Um, he started smoking a lot of marijuana, became depressed, had been to see a psychiatrist not too long before this incident took place. Had been to see a psychologist, and ironically, the day after we had arrested him, he was going to have his next appointment with his psychologist. Okay. He never told them about his violent fantasies. Um, so, again, someone who'd gone through, a, again, a knock to his self-esteem. Mm-hmm. I think this fed into him then sort of picking up prostitutes, as I said, smoking a lot more marijuana, um, playing this game. Because if you look how it went on when he was picking up or meeting, having meetings with estate agents, real estate agents selling houses – Give him the fake name, and it always had to be a female. He said if a, if a male answered the phone when he phoned about a particular place, he would put the phone down. Okay. So, again, the fact that it had to be a female was very important to this fantasy. I think he liked this positive attention he would get. You know, he would go there, pretend to be this high roller guy who's going to spend millions on a house, give him this false name. And he said he liked the fact that they would say, yes, Mr. So-and-so, no, Mr. So-and-so, uh, basically mm. kissing up to him. Mm. That sort of positive so from a woman. So – some negative things been going on in his life. He's put on weight. He's feeling low about himself. Self-image is, is knocked. He's starting to see prostitutes. And then he starts this idea of now he's living in a, in a house which is empty yeah. in, in Centurion. Mm. And he starts calling estate agents so that he can get women isolated and alone. In his house. Well, the is first one is the estate agents. We would go meet them at the show houses. The houses oh, I that see. He wanted to buy. Okay. So what, how this progressed, and this is, we, we've spoken about this before, the issue of trial runs. So they kind of inch towards doing what they ultimately want to do by testing it out little bit by little yes, bit. Yes, yes. So first there was, I think, about 10 uh, state agents that he would phone about a particular house or say, I want to buy a fancy house. And then go this and meet with spend. them. Meet with them wherever it was. And then he would just. With he a false the, name. False name, false number. And then he would just okay. not contact them okay. again. The lady he actually killed in November 2001 was a second person that he brought back to his house. Okay. And the people he brought back to his house were interior decorators. Yes. So the ruse changed from, I want to come and check out the house that you're selling, that you've listed mm-hmm. in the newspaper, etc., to, 
I have a house in Century and I want to kit it out mm. and do the interior decor. And so he started started identifying interior decorators and inviting them to the house to quote on yep. doing interior and decor. Again, always in female. If it's a male, okay, no, it has to be a female. So that sets the scene. We have to know a little bit about Jose, um, and we know that he's got this emerging fantasy now. Mm. He's now contacted a um, interior designer and invited her to come to the house. Mm. And here's the first clip. I'm almost trying to piece together what I've been hearing about you, which is almost a very complex person, but a loner, sort of, but deeply wrestling with a whole bunch of things the whole time. And then perhaps to the events of what happened with what happened here in this room. How could you sort of... Explain that all to me. Well, I found the lady um, because I, I I wanted to decorate this place nicely. Mm. And for me, it was like a new spot, and I moved on my own. And I, because I, I sold my place, you know, there's a lot of things I don't have. You know, so mm. the place looks a bit empty. Mm. I wanted some couches and curtains, you know, just decorate to live in a nice place, you know. So um, I was told by a friend at work about this place. And I went it's to in Joburg, isn't it? Yeah. Is it? And um, I did meet a young little girl there. And um, look, I like the furniture, but it's very pricey, very expensive. Mm. So I thought, look, I don't think I'm going to be a, afford to decorate this whole place, you know. But I'd like some um, tips or... Um, like a quotation or something, what would it cost if I wanted something um, specific, you know? Like, nice, like those couches, those are not just, you know, I could bought couches around the corner. Mm. But I was looking for something um, that's nice. I think you should buy yourself something nice. You know? mm. And, um, well, I organized with the lady to come over to give me a quote. Mm -hmm. We drove, uh, she parked a car inside, and I also parked my car. This was during, this, during the day, it was during working hours. Mm -hmm. I made an appointment with her, and... Um, what, what day was this of the week, I think if I remember correctly, it was a Tuesday. Because okay. uh, I spoke to her, and then you know, asked her when would it suit you to... Mm to come and see me, you know, she said Tuesday. Was this the first decorator that you had contacted? No, before that there was another decorator, um, but it was a chubby lady. The same place? No, no, it's another place. Can you remember what that was called? Um, the House of Wood, Tian Clubby. Oh, okay. House of Wood. Yeah. Can you remember her name? Um, I can't remember her name. Um, I can remember her appearance. Because um, they gave me a business card and said, look, she's a furniture decorator, whatever you want to call it. And she came around, you know, but I played, I played this game that I lie about my name. Mm. You know, I gave a fake name and I got a, a, a number that you can't trace, you know. And I, I kind of, I just wanted to see, you know, if I play my game, you know, can I get caught out or not? You know, so you know, I had this lady out here, 
I told him that my name's Lionel Monty and this is my telephone number. And I even explained to where my place is, you know. Mm. And um, she looked around and, you know, told me how she's going to give me a quote for furniture and it. You know, and I thought, gee, you know, you're quite convincing. You can, you can invite a woman to your house and they actually believe you, you know. And it was that the first time you'd sort of yeah, tried to do like, It was like fun for me. Mm. Yeah. I pick up the phone and I said, my name is Mr. So-and-so. This is where I stay. You know, I mean, if I, what's the word, if I didn't want to be caught, I would lie about my address, you know, or tell them I stay somewhere else, or meet them in the middle of nowhere, you know, and, um, I mean, I even paid this lady's appointment, you know, because after, you know, she was, I didn't do anything to her, you know, it wasn't, that wasn't the agenda that I, that I, Played in my, my little head, you know. I just wanted to see. When was that? Sorry, twenty again. Uh, I think I saw her before this. Um, this lady. Long before. We're talking like a weeks, days. Uh, maybe weeks before. Yeah, I can't. Okay, look, dates and all of that is. Um, look, it was already when I was living yes, mm. which is the first of October. But yeah. And I thought, you know, I mean, I, I, yeah, this woman, she believes me that I'm looking to decorate the place. Anyway, I did want a quotation, mm. how much it's going to cost me to decorate, but then at the same time, you know, I can't afford it. Mm. You know, she started talking about thousands of this and that, you know. So I played along, you know, I said, look, uh, send me a quote and tell me, you know. And um, I even went and paid her consultation fees. Because afterwards, you know, after that little game was over, I uh, phoned and told, look, I'm not interested, I actually want to go, and I made some excuse, I'm going to go on a holiday, I'm not going to buy furniture. Mm. She told me, look, you still owe me my consultation fees, so I went and <laughs> paid her and gave my sell them and all of that, you know. Mm. So it was, what's the word for it? I'm not sure about the word, if it's a game or what I was, you know, my phoning estate agents and meeting them and going with them and pretending that I'm a, a buyer, you know. That's something you also done? Um, yeah, I've met estate agents, well not yet, you know. I just pick up the phone and say, look, I'm Mr. So-and-so, I want to buy a house, can you show me around? And, you know, look, I lie about my name. Has that been since you've moved into this place or that before this place in the past? Or? No, it was... It was was after I moved to you. Okay. I don't know for what reason, if it's loneliness or if it's just boredom or mm. being mischievous. You know, um, so you would actually go and meet them at, at said house or the show house? Yeah, but I mean, I would, you know, drive with my car and that. I wouldn't, um, you know, try anything funny. You know? mm. I, I would just lie about my name. Nobody needs to know that my name is Josiah. Mm. That is why I had another phone, because like hey, people can't trace you and mm. phone you and ask, hey, listen, are you still going to come by the house? Or, are you still interested in furniture and all that? Mm. And yeah, I got away with it, you know. People actually believed me, you know, that I was looking to buy a house. And then I would just make an excuse and say, look, I'm not interested. Mm. Uh, no, but I never did anything mm. to these people. I didn't attack them or touch them or rape them. Or, it was more like, um, like a bit of excitement, you know, 
uh, during my working time, I, I could like for half an hour um, pretend that I'm a, a buyer, mm-hmm. you know, just and I couldn't believe that people are so gullible, you know, that they don't check up on you, you know, they believe your name is, I could make up as many names as I felt like. Okay, so this is the game we're talking about here, the emergence of this game. And ultimately, this will lead to murder. So here he's saying he's talking about the fact that he's not raping people. He's not doing anything anything illegal, let's say, mm. uh, but, but, per se. But he's starting to experiment with this with mm. this fantasy of his. Yeah. So again, I mean, this fits in the concept of trial runs as you incrementally do more and more and more leading up until your ultimate sort of crime. Um, it feeds in quite nicely with his need to be sort of to get this positive affirmation from yeah. a female. You know, yeah. treats him very nicely as if he's somebody in charge. Again, perhaps power related issues. What's interesting when he talks about that first interior decorator, um, you know, she parked the car outside of his house. Um, um, before her, there was another decorator, a bit of a chubby lady. Um, I can't remember her name, but I can remember her appearance. Okay. That's quite interesting that, that that's what he remembers about her or that's how he describes her, which I think, again, fits in that the victim has to look – I mean, it has to be a female. Remember, okay. he says he doesn't want men coming to his house yeah. or helping him with the house sale. So, again, fits into that sort of – it has to be a certain type of victim. Okay. Uh, which, again, if you look at it this way, although this might all like, look like an innocent game, this is just him – testing out little bits and pieces of it, getting the confidence. I can get away with this. Okay, now what's the next thing? And that's why we take the bigger risk when he starts to bring someone to his house. And that very first interior decorator that he did not harm um, actually says when she was traced and interviewed, says, yes, she remembers going there, and she remembers in the bathroom, and this is the bathroom where he killed the the second lady. Um, I saw, I think she saw an axe or a hammer on the basin. That made me feel very uncomfortable when I left. So already we know there that that potential idea for physical harm was present with that first interior decorator that he brought back to his house. Okay. Um, and again, this is the game, so it's going to be repetitive. It's serial in nature. And where is this game going to end up going to? And we know ultimately where it did go, go to. All right, and we will come back then to more, some more clips from the uh, interview after the break. Um, and we'll really get into his first crime and hear him talking about the act, his motivation for, you know, what, how, why he explains that the murder, first murder happened and actually what, what took place over the course of the first murder. Of course, um, please do subscribe to our YouTube page, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Profiler Africa. We're also on Instagram uh, and Facebook. Of course, go online and check out materials that we put up, um, crime scene photographs, etc., from the different cases that we talk about. Uh, we are also, of course, on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes as a podcast. So please do listen, but subscribe, subscribe to the YouTube page, and please encourage your friends to subscribe to the YouTube page as well. We were needing to get to that first thousand subscribers. That's our immediate goal. If you'd like to win a copy of Gerard's new book, The Profiler Diaries, from the case files of a police psychologist, it is available now at uh, South African bookstores. You can get it online at um, any of your local online bookstores, and if you're an international listener, it is available as an ebook at Amazon.com. So go along, get your hands on a copy, have a read. We are giving away a copy, a signed copy, um, which is going to be worth an absolute fortune a couple of years from now. Um, if you'd like to win yourself a copy, all you have to do is find us on iTunes and leave us a review. Tell us what you think of the show. Good or bad, you could be a winner. So check us out on iTunes, leave us a review. You could be a winner. We'll be back in a second. 
South Africa, 58 people are murdered every day. On Profiler, we discuss the crimes, the criminals, and the people who ultimately caught them. Um, Today, of course, we're talking about a serial killer by the name of Jose De Silva. And we are very fortunate to have segments of of the audio from a lengthy interview that um, Gerard conducted with the, the killer at the crime scene um, when he was caught and identified. Um, we're going to jump right into the second clip. So where we've gotten to so far, Jared, of course, is that we've got Jose, a man that's, uh, you know, displaying the, this kind of emerging fantasy. Um, he started by engaging with real estate agents, using a fake name, going to look at properties. He's now flipped the script on that a little, and he's got his house in Centurion that he's now inviting um, um, interior decorators to come and look at under the ruse that he wants a quote on on interior decor for the house. Um, and here we, we, we join, rejoin the conversation where Jared has asked the question, it sounds like it was a thrill to get away with it. Well, you see, but I, I didn't, you know, even though the opportunities were there, if I wanted to do something mm-hmm. to rob or rape, or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that wasn't my agenda. Mm-hmm. It's not why I would, mm-hmm. you know, do these things, you know, go buy another, change my number, you know, and make up another name and let's think, okay, what am I going to do? Okay, I've been the state agent or the, the guy that's looking for a house, let me see, uh, you know, um, call someone to the carpet cleaners or um, the curtain person, the lady that did the curtains or something. But it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it was just, I don't know what the word it is for it. Because, you know, I would lead people on and then the moment I realized that they are convinced, you know, then I would like leave it, I would drop it, you know. Like going to a house with an agent, she shows me the house and I would like jokingly tell you, oh, you know, I think um, this is the house my wife and myself are looking for. You know? And, you know, people just get ecstatic about it. They wouldn't leave you alone. You know? They'd phone you the next day, you know. And, you know, meantime I was just laughing, thinking, you know, I don't want to buy a house. It was just a game for me. You know? I don't know if it's boredom, if it's the excitement of being incognito of, you know, pretending that you're another person, mm. you know, that you put on a tie and people think that you're a wealthy guy that's coming to buy a house or whatever. But on this day, this lady did something wrong, you know, um, because she insulted me and I showed him our place. You know, I told him, look, um, I want to decorate my house. And, you know, she thought that I lived in some mansion or some palace. Mm-hmm. She, like, kind of just gave me the dirty look, you know, like, why are you wasting my time, you know, kind of look, you know. Is that when she was here? Yeah. And, um, no, she didn't think much of my little place. Was it just a look or was it something she said or did? Well, she treated me like a little little kid, you know, mm-hmm. a little boy type of um, disrespect. You know. She's some snotty, upper-class, Santon 
person, you know. Mm. And I just pretended that I didn't hear that, you know, that mm. she didn't get to me and I just decided, well, I'll teach you a little lesson. Mm. I want to get a stick, at a little club in the garage. Was she in the house? Yeah, she was looking around and I just waited for her to catch her in this position where she could be difficult for her to mm. just run out. And I just gave her a good shot on the head while she dropped. And then I realized, shit, you know, now you're really, now you, this game that you've been playing, you know, is, uh, what are you going to do now? This woman is going to get up and go to the cops and, you know, um, get you into trouble. You know? So, yeah, I tied her up, I closed her hands, you know, and I thought she's going to scream. So, Whew, yeah. Okay, so we've gone from the game suddenly taking a dramatic turn based off the interaction with this woman. Yeah. So, I mean, we, what I... What I really get out of this is, is how he, he just he tries to make it her fault you know all you had to do was sort of do what everybody else does but you insulted me um, and I doubt I, I seriously doubt that she said anything that was that would jeopardize her maybe getting a client mm. um, so it's again his perceptions and perhaps his rationalizations that he needs to take the next step because if uh, in one of the later portions, he also comment, kind of comments things like she was semi-militaristic, a dictator type of girl with this thing under her arm. Um, all she had to do is what the other ladies did. Um, you know, just give me, make me feel like, hey, you can have a nice place. Maybe you don't have lots of money, but we could make it nice the way you want it to look. Mm. So, again, he's, he's blaming her yeah. for him yeah. taking this club and killing her, yeah. essentially. Yet he's created, in your mind, really, he's created the entire context for a murder. Yeah. He's just waiting for a trigger. He's just Absolutely. looking for a trigger to take to the next level. You know, pushing at that little boundary, and now he needs some justification to go ahead and do it, which is, well, it's her fault. She treated me badly. She should have done what the others have done. Yeah. So that's quite an interesting you know, rationalization on his side to, to, to give him that oomph to go over into that next step. Yeah, and he, he refers to, like, this little club yeah. in the garage. Is there something in the minimizing even of yeah. the... The weapon itself. So it's not like I had a pickaxe, and it was a it was like a truncheon, yeah. a little truncheon that he that he basically knocked her out and you know incapacitated her, and then of course later on got got a different weapon to finish the job. Yeah. Um, when you're interviewing him, do you get a sense of his mood as he's explaining this portion of of the crime? Is you know is there a sense of any relish or a sense of is he just being matter of fact? Talk to us a little bit yeah. about your kind of reflections on him in the moment as you're conducting the interview. You know, again, he was very, he spoke very comfortably. I didn't get the idea that he was sort of relishing it and getting pleasure out of recounting the whole event to me. Um, and you can hear from the, the, the sort of excerpts that, that you listen to now um, how he was communicating um, in that time. I think, again, what struck me with, with Jose, he was about, I was about the same age, roughly, uh, if I recall correctly, at the time that I was interviewing him. You know, he, he could have literally gone to the same school as me. Yeah. You know, he's an English speaker, you know, first language. I obviously spoke Portuguese also. But he literally could have been one of the guys at school with me. Yeah. So in a way, there, there was perhaps, that maybe worked in my favor, a comfortableness with him yeah. in that in that conversation, and you can hear it's sort of very matter of fact. He's you know going into what happened, not in a overzealous way. Um, 
And again, again, for me, from my point of view, very grateful that he was prepared to talk to me for two hours about uh, what he was thinking. Because this is for a psychologist, you know, when you talk about getting into the mind of the killer, this is really helping me get into the mind of the killer. Absolutely. Um, even if he's using his own little rationalizations and justifications, that's important to know and understand and see. Because you can sometimes, when you're interviewing the next offender, use those little justifications and rationalizations to get them to admit to what they've done. Yeah. Okay. Um, All right. Well, let's jump back into the interview then. Um, In the next clip, we're really going to just hear more of of the crime unfolding. So uh, take a listen. Yeah, I was good too. I wasn't nasty. I didn't eat her. I didn't didn't rape her. Um, I gave her water, you know, tried to speak to her, you know. I didn't know what to do. You know, why did I do that? You know, because you can't heat somebody and then the next... You know, if you tell her, I'm sorry, I don't think they'll believe you, you know, and I'll think, shit, you know, this guy's a psycho or something, you know. Because, you know, then when she was started up, I tried to explain to her why I did it, you know, that she shouldn't go, um, you know, speak to me that way, you know. That she needed only once at that point. Yeah, look, um, if I remember right, I hit her, I think, somewhere on the crown no, and, um, was it was an axe or was it a club? No, it was, it, was a, it was a club. All right. No blade on it, just a... No. Right, okay. And then, you know, I was afresh to start screaming, so I did just tie a, a knife. And then I tied her hands and feet, you know. With what? What did you use? I had um, cable ties. It's these little things I use at my work. You know, okay. They work great, so... I had some in the garage and then I didn't know what to do with this woman because I didn't do this because I don't want to rape her, you know, she's not, didn't do anything for me and anyway I'm not, that's not what turns me on, Um, and I was stuck with this woman, you know, what what do I do now? And she was still quite conscious at that point? Well, she was a bit... You know, I think maybe I hit her a bit too hard or something. Was she bleeding? Not, not badly. You know, not like the old places full of blood or anything. You know. Was she sort of lying? She lied. She fell yeah, on the floor and I, I got some blankets because um, she told me the floor's cold. So I put her on the blanket. I, I used to give her water when she got thirsty. And, um, she was clothed? Yeah, okay. I didn't take a close off. But, you know, then I, must, I did something I wasn't prepared. I realized, you know, shit, you know, if you do this, what now? You know, now you're in really serious shit. Because this woman can go to the cops and, you know, get you into big shit. Mm-hmm. And I've just attacked the person, I've just knocked her. And I and yeah, in the beginning I was aggressive. I told you know, who the fuck do you think you are to come and talk to me this way? You know, you know, snotty. And um, you know, then I I thought and thought, you know, I said, Now what am I gonna do? And it was quick, you know, I made that decision she was tied up, you know, I thought, shit, you know, I can't, as long as you're alive, you're going to get me into shit, and so I might as well just get rid of you, so I went to the 
garage, I've got an axe. I thought, look, if I just give you one shot in the head, it'll get rid of you. you know? And that's the only thing is, you know, I'm a total amateur at these things. I didn't prepare myself for this. You know, I've just seen it in the movies. You know, I got very bloody, so I thought maybe if I throw into the bath, and at least all the you know bleeding is being taken away. <laughs> and um, so you came back with an axe. Yeah. And did she see you? Okay, sort of. You 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 came here with an axe. What what sort of took place then? No, no, I couldn't. I couldn't look. After she was tied up and I hit her and all that, and I was angry, you know. And at that point, it was just the one whack on the head. Yeah. Okay, with the club. I thought, um, you know, now I'm in real shit, but what now? So, yeah, I did something really stupid. I thought, well, if I get rid of you, nobody's going to to know about, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in my little sick head, I did that. Just gave her a good shot from behind because I couldn't, like, confront her, you know, like, enjoy what I was doing, you know. I did it in a coward way. Did she see you with the axe before up to that No, no, she was, she was facing to where, where you are now. And she hadn't tried to get away while you went outside to get the axe or anything? Well, she couldn't because I tied her feet and hands with those cable ties. Right. I put some tape over her mouth so she couldn't, like, scream and call the neighbours or something. Mm. And yeah, my little fantasy game that I was playing by pretending that I was getting away with it, you know, and just fooling people. Um, because look, I had lots of opportunity. If I was a thief, I could have stolen many people. Mm. I could have stolen cars. But I could have murdered thief if that was like my excitement I was looking for. Mm. And, you know, after you convince, um, you know, and for some reason I just went for women, you know. There's a lot of men doing sales jobs and whatever. Mm-hmm. They just didn't appeal to me, you know. But it wasn't anything physical. I never tried to rape anybody. You know? Not even this woman that was tied up that I tried to take off her clothes and have sex or anything, you know. So you didn't have sex at any stage with her? I didn't rape her, I didn't sleep with her or anything, you know, no I sex. was actually more panicking, what do I do with this body? So know? there wasn't even voluntary sex between you two? No, no, and they can say what they say because there's condoms in my bathroom, I, I, I didn't use a condom because I wasn't excited, you know, I, was, I just wish I could made what happened disappear, but I couldn't, you know, what was done was done, and I had to think, you know, what now? Okay, so a lot that's interesting there. The first thing I want to ask you about is that, so now he's, his anger has come out, he's knocked this woman on the head, knocked her unconscious, and then he's got cable ties to tie her up. How much are you thinking premeditation here? Is this just, you know, is, is he going, are the cable ties there, prepared, ready, or is he really acting in the moment here? And he said that he had the cable ties, I think, in the garage, and they yeah. were cable ties that he used for his network installing jobs. Okay, okay. So that's possible. But I think if you look back at the, 
the first interior decorator that came to the house that he didn't do anything to commented on that there was um i think it was the axe or a hammer in on the basin in the bathroom where this murder occurred i think he would have known where this is he would have fantasized i think about where this is going to go to um and and as on the, even on the previous one had been sort of work, working towards that point mm. he makes he's, he's very clear on the fact that He's not interested in this woman sexually. There's no rape or anything like that. Why is he reiterating this point that I didn't rape her, I didn't look at her like that, that wasn't part of the game, that wasn't part of my fantasy or whatever? Why is he reiterating that part? It's interesting. I think he's trying to convince us that he's not such a bad guy. I mean, even how he's saying, you know, I didn't treat her badly. This is after he's whacked her on the head. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you've murdered and, her. You're murdering her. You know, um, <laughs> I think his ways of trying to make us think not as badly of him. Sure. Um, you know, she was found naked. He said, well, that just had to do with disposal of the clothes. Um, which, unfortunately, I think forensically too too difficult to say whether there'd been any indications of sexual activity. Okay. Um, but we also know, again, we, he wants woman. He wants woman that, you know, he comments on the, the looks of the previous interior decor. She was a bit chubby. Yeah. You know, um, this need to be treated positively by women specifically, not men. Yeah. So I think there's an, whether you want to, Admit it or not, there's an underlying sexual dynamic to what's going on here. Yeah. Whether or not he did do something, was going to do something physically sexual to them, there's an underlying sexual dynamic between him as a man and these people having to be female victims. Yeah. What else do you take from this portion of the interview? Um, again, I think it's just his rationalizations that I, I find quite, uh, you know, quite amazing. Um, you know, that he wasn't nasty to her. Because so. what's happened is he's knocked her on the head. Then he's gone and tied her up, cable tied her. He's gotten her, she's regained conscious to a certain de- consciousness to a certain degree. He's giving her water, he's saying, he's treating her nicely. But at the same time, he's realizing, hey, I've gone too far with this woman. If I let her go, I'm going to be in the shit yet. And again, blaming her. You know, the one is saying, I treated her nicely. I gave her water because she was thirsty. Mm. But then I told you, know, who the fuck do you think you are to come to talk to me this way? You know, snotty. Again, kind of like yeah. transparent. So that rage is still there. Someone. That anger is still yeah. there motivating him. It's not just that now he's mitigating against getting caught. Now, it's interesting. You know, I said, have you ever, he said, you know, he's never done anything like this before. But he said that he, he used to have violent fantasies towards his father, who was, he says, abusive towards him, not, not a great father. Um, and his, one of his previous em- employers, who was a male, and he thought about taking an axe and chopping them, <laughs> which is a bit ironic because, you know, here we have, that's what he did with this yeah, lady. Exactly. And he says, because you, cause you also sort of treated me badly and disrespectfully, you know. So, again, yeah. that fantasy that's been developing perhaps over the years, just playing it out in this particular way. Yeah. While we're here, just just for clarity, before we jump back into the murder itself, so he took the body. So he moved the body while she was still conscious to the bath. Yeah. So this was essentially all taking place in the bathroom. There's, a, I think, there's a shower, if I recall correctly, in the bathroom, yes. a toilet, and the actual bath and the basin. Um, so essentially, once he's whacked her the first time, she's lying on the floor. Then, when he decides, I've got to finish this off, and I think he got the axe and he chopped her again. Yeah. Uh, then he puts the body in the bath. And was she conscious when he asked to hit her in the back of the head? She was, dis- she was looking yeah. elsewhere, he said. Hey, yeah. She was looking away. Okay. Face, face to sort of look at her. Now, it's interesting when we went back f- with the forensics team and we, d- we splayed back in those days luminol, which is the stuff that reacts. Because if you look into, in this bathroom, you can't see any traces of blood. Yeah, no so he, indications that anything untoward had happened. Okay. So, of course, you bring forensics in and, and it's, you can only spray luminol when it's dark. So we did it at night. 
And you could literally see as that guy starts with his hand sprayer, spraying the luminal on the on the ceiling, you could see what we call cast or spatter. As you know, obviously with the axe having blood on it, and he swings it back over his shoulder to get another swing, and it casts off the blood onto the ceiling. And you could see these sort of splatter stripes, if I can call it that, as you can tell okay. each direction that he pulled back and and thrust the 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 the, the, the axe back down. And that was kind of creepy. And then as we kind of sprayed the whole you know, bathroom and it's glowing from the reaction to the the blood that's being cleaned up. And then we start to spray on the floor and we can actually see on the carpet because it was an ensuite bathroom. Um, as he, as this forensics guy um, is, is um, spraying, Andre Massain was spraying the luminal on the floor, you can actually see this stripes of obviously blood had been drag, drag marks in blood that are not moving down the passage to out the sort of um, flat mm. other, is, is where he stayed but are moving towards the cupboard. And we could actually see when we opened the cupboard and we sprayed the luminol, you could actually almost see the position of her body with her legs curled up. So at some sure. point, he had kept her in, in the bath for, I think, a day or so, but at some point he dragged the body and put it in the cupboard and then before disposing it. Now, he never spoke about that. Okay. Um, but that's something that, um, you know, that did happen. We could tell forensically that for some reason he didn't want to mention why he mm. had um, mm. put the body in the cupboard. Do you think he... he he had an intention of killing this woman when she walked in the door. Is it really that the kind of the incidents that, ha- you know, what happened in the course of this engagement with her that that he made the decision there and then? I think he knew that this was where his fantasy wanted to go. Okay. Like with the first one where it didn't happen, yeah. but maybe he didn't have the courage yet. Yeah. Maybe in his mind she didn't say the right things that would make give him the justification yeah. to go ahead and kill her. Like, Where this one in his mind, he said she did. She treated me badly, snotty, yeah. like I'm a little child. She was a militaristic dictator. And that gives him his little justification to, to take it to the next level. Yeah. So I think he knew this was a possibility. It's going to happen at some point when he gets the right courage and the right time with the right victim. Okay, well, let's close out this segment then with another another um, portion of the interview that you conducted with him and um, essentially where we join the conversation again is where now he's explaining that she could have avoided this all she had to do was what all the other ladies did and just be nice to him yeah well look I put in a bath and I said look Joe's now you have there's no turning back now my friend you know what the fuck are you going to do now because you have just done something horrible. You know, this woman pissed you off, so you fucking just got rid of her. Mm. You know, um, I didn't have any, like, strategy and plans. Because I never planned to. Mm. It wasn't part of my, the games I played, you know, by changing my number and giving people fake names. You know, I mean, in any way, if I wanted to get away with it, I... If you think as a criminal, you would must probably get a house that's not yours. Mm-hmm. Nobody can trace it back to you. I mean, she almost yeah. fucked things up by changing the rules. She? Almost fucked things up by changing the rules in a, in a, in a way without her realizing that she, she didn't, she played a different game. Well, all she had to do was just, you know, do what all the other ladies did. Because she was about the second interior decorator. Mm-hmm. Was just, you know, give me... Make me feel, hey, you can have a nice place here. You know? and maybe you don't have a lot of money, but you can, with time, make it look the way you, mm. you want it to. And, um, you know, then I was stuck with this dead woman in my bath. You know? mm. And uh, I, I, I froze, you know. I, I, I wasn't this 
criminal-minded person at all. I said, shit, what the fuck now? What do you do with a dead body? You know? Um, you know, these things you see in movies of people chopping up with, with acids and uh, uh, chains and digging holes and, you know, I mean, get real, you know, it's, um, you know, and then I thought quick, I said, look, shit, I'm really fucked, is the maid is going to come on Thursday, so, you know, I had to kind of tell her, look, don't come, you know, mm-hmm. even though I said to all the dirty washing, and um, I was like paralyzed, I, I, you know, I couldn't, um, I don't know what what to do, what now, what's the next step, you know, and, and then I took her out, I put her on a blanket, she was lying there with us, um, what do you call those things, those beanbag things, beanbags, so how long was she in the bath for, sorry, she was a full day, you know, I, okay. I, and I took all the, these things and I just put it out, because I couldn't stand, uh, these very ones, yeah, I okay. couldn't stand watching, uh, you know, a dead body, and she was clothed, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, I wasn't excited or mm. not that inclined, even by blood and, and that kind of stuff. You know. And I thought, look, you you've got to get rid of this because after a while, uh, standing, I think, with the heat and all of that, you know, a bit of a smell started yeah. coming out. That was it. That was it. The, the site where they found it in the creek was not a. And I, mm-hmm. what I did is I. First of all, I couldn't look at her face. Mm. I, I couldn't turn her around and look at her. And I, I, I tied her where her head was gashed. I, I put a little cloth to, to close her to, and I took this tape and I taped it just to keep her head. Was she taped after she was dead? Yes, okay. uh, when I took out of the bath and I kind of like, I wouldn't say I cleaned her, but because I left her bra on, I couldn't even Mm-hmm. Take them off. The, the clothes, I cut them off because you know uh, I forgot that a body goes um, hard after mm-hmm. certain period. I never had experience, you know, so I had to um, rip it off. You know, cut them mm-hmm. off. And um, how did she get cut on the one ankle? Uh, she had a little gash. No, yeah, sort of almost a little. Look, I know I tied her feet to it, and those are quite horrible. They're quite mean. There's black ones that are in the garage. Yes. Okay. So it could have maybe I made it too tight, or and I also tied her hands, and I tied it on the front, not behind her back. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, look in the smell. I said, shit, you know, I, I took some pipe and I now put a piece of pipe in her anus because it um, was smelly and I, I also thought back of her mouth, but I taped the whole head, so mm. the smell kind of dropped, you know, mm. and then I'm still stuck it out of the dead body. You know. Which was the bath full of water at that stage? Yes, I think. you cleaned her or not? And I, I look after I drained the water, I, I had to take her clothes off. She had trousers and a top, I think, because it was all bloody and all that. Mm-hmm. And um, I put her in that um, blanket, and you know, then I, I thought, shit, you know, what do I do now? I'm, I'm stuck with a dead body. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, I got rid of a car because I thought maybe 
Uh, I'm not into stealing cars. It's I don't want to want to call. I drive it up the road and I locked it and threw away the keys. I didn't leave. I didn't even leave the keys on. You know, most people would you know, like somebody steals. I just and yeah, and then I've disposed of a body. You know, one night so I said, look, just I don't forget about the movies. You know, they throw bodies into dams and dig holes and I said, you know, you must just throw it away, you know, just get rid of it. So mm. yeah, I, I, because she was on a blanket, I dragged her, put in a boot and yeah, it was very horrible. <laughs> I, it was very late at night, little traffic, I just you know, threw the body out and I thought, oh, nobody is ever going to find out about it. We'll be back after the break. Subscribe to our YouTube page and tell your friends. In South Africa, 58 people are murdered every day. Here on Profiler, we discuss the crimes, the criminals, and the people who caught them. And today we're talking about a gentleman by the name of Jose De Silva. We've been listening to portions of an interview that Jared conducted with Jose um, in the bathroom where he committed um, the murder that we're talking about. Um, your preparation, we talked a little bit earlier about your kind of your mindset going into the interview. Now, you know, with your kind of all of your years of experience behind you, how important is it to kind of really consider all of the elements of of how you present yourself, your tone, your look when you're walking into a room to kind of conduct an interview with one of these guys where you're hoping that they're going to to kind of open up to you? Yeah, I think that's where we don't train our police very effectively about how to prepare for an interview, how to approach an interview. Um, a lot of research actually says that there are quite a number of people who have arrested for a wide range of things, not, not necessarily a murder, um, are quite prepared to testify, uh, to, to um, confess, um, if you don't screw it up as an, by being an asshole of an interviewer. Nobody wants to confess that someone has been an idiot to them. Yeah. You know? um, so, again, I think it, there is an art and a science behind proper investigative interviewing. And it starts with looking at, for me, if it's a murder scene, what, what is this murder scene telling me about this individual? Yeah. And what's interesting is, is um, a couple of day, a couple years later when I was doing training on the serial murder course that we spoke about before, um, one of the investigators, Captain Ken Speed at the time, was attending the course. And he said, you know, we had some um, murders of uh, real estate agents in Cape Town area in the Western Cape. And they wonder if it's not him. So he said, well, I said, well, why don't we go off to the course today and go to the prison and see if we can interview Jose. And because we were on the course, we both were entire, again, neatly dressed. Okay. And Ken looks very much nerdy, kind of responsible kind of guy. And so we go interview Jose and he didn't even remember me. When I said, hey, do you remember I interviewed you for two hours in the toilet? He's like, no, he didn't remember that night at all. But anyway, so we start chatting. And in, in our sort of conversation with him, he says, you know, I don't mind speaking to you guys because I can see you guys are professional. You, you know, you're, yeah. you're neat. You know your job. Yeah. Not like that guy that arrested me. What's his name? Captain or, or Pine Pinar. Okay. Um, 
You know, and Pine Pinar, who was an investigating officer, was your typical, if you imagine your 80s murder and robbery cop, you had that patched leather jacket, oh, okay, <laughs> the little mustache, snort yeah. pencil mustache. Yeah. You know, he spoke very broken English with a very thick Afrikaans. So you're almost like a stereotypical cop, yeah. but obviously a really great cop. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, and that guy, I mean, this is the guy who caught Jose de Silva, he's, and he kind of had a negative view of Pine because of how Pine dressed and he spoke and the way he behaved. So again, I think it just reiterated that Jose really at least found some link between me because of the way I approached him and the way I was dressed and how, I suppose you could say, in quote-unquote, professional I came across. And he kind of felt, I'm happy to talk to you guys because you're very professional. So again, I think you start off by looking at your crime scene. How can you use that to your advantage in terms of how you approach this individual? doesn't always work. I mean, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe Jose would have spoken to me anyway, no matter how I was dressed. But Mm -hmm. um, I felt that's the best way to approach him. The follow-up interview a couple of years ago, he kind of wake, in a way kind of confirmed that. Mm. And even when I got to his house, it was very neat, very meticulous. You know, the, the, the fridge, I always like to look in people's fridges. You know, it was very neat. Um, the whole setup was all very neat and orderly, um, okay. which again kind of just re- reaffirmed how I'm going to approach this guy. If I want to upset him and, and, and um, agitate him, then I behave in a sloppy way. Mm. But if I want to have this link with him to get him to talk to me, I mm. kind of have to find some common ground. Which raises the question for me, if if he is kind of meticulous, just how he goes about his daily life, neat and tidy, meticulous, why does it feel like from the clip we heard before the break that once he'd commit, that there was a, not a lot of organization mm. around the actual murder itself, that mm. you know this was kind of a, a passionate moment in his words where he reacted to this woman in the moment and then was left to kind of figure out the cleanup mm. and mm. the disposal after that. Why wouldn't there have been the, you know, there's a consciousness that he's mm. potentially leading to some some more serious crime. Why is he not planning to, 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 to account yeah. for what will be required of him when he gets to that point? I, I'm not sure. You know, unless he felt that um, you know, it wouldn't be as messy, that he thought maybe whacking someone on the head, you know, they die, like in the, maybe in a movie kind of style. Yeah. Um, so I'm not too sure. The reality is of how messy it is. And, you know, how difficult it actually is to move a body that's dead, literally dead weight mm. and to clean up blood. Um, had he thought he's going to go that far, maybe it had been his fantasy. But was he really expecting to go that far? Again, just pushing the little boundaries yeah. and perhaps that just came faster than he predicted. I don't know. You know, it's a good question. I should have asked him that. <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks, Gerard. I, I try getting one good question at least an episode. <laughs> <laughs> um so he's now gone and kept the body in the house. We know that he's put the body in a cupboard for a couple of days because he can't really stand the sight of the body and he doesn't know how to deal with it, I guess. Um, then he's gone and just disposed of the body again quite clumsily and quite, you know, he's quite brazen that he doesn't mm. think that anyone's going to find the body. He doesn't think he's going to yeah. get caught. How does he get caught? Okay, well, just regarding the body, I mean, I, my, my hypothesis was that he wanted the body to be found. And when I asked him later on the interview, he said, yes, he did want the body to be found. Okay. Because you could have so easily just pulled it 10 meters further off th- away from the road, and yeah. it's farmlands oh, and, and with, okay. the, yeah, uh, with yeah. a bit of a rising berm. Yeah. And people would probably not have found it for weeks. Yeah. So the, he could have – he did a lot of effort. Um, it wouldn't have been too much more effort to hide the body effectively because he – firstly, what he did is he disposed of her vehicle at a nearby restaurant parking lot. So, again, okay. it's not as if you're trying to yeah. hide it in the bushes. No, exactly. Very easily. I mean, it's going to be discovered because there's this vehicle that's overnighting yeah. here in this parking lot. That's yeah. strange. Yeah. Um, and, again, you know, he, he dumps the clothes as he's driving on the highway, the, the Krugersdorp Highway, 
nears Deep Sluit, which is that informal settlement, and he chucks the black bag out there with clothes, hoping somebody's going to pick him up and, and use them or dispose mm. of them. And then as it turns around at one point and then literally just offloads the body. So a lot of effort, but I, which also makes me think is why he wanted the body to be found because it, a lot of effort that he's taking, but not to hide the body, if okay. you understand what I'm saying. Okay. And he could have gone off a dirt road, pulled yeah. it, dumped it, or as I said, just pulled it a bit further into the, into, off, the, off the side of the highway and, and it would be more difficult to find that body. So at this stage, let's talk a little bit about how you kind of profile this guy. You know, what's going on in his head? Um. I think, again, the, the wanting the body to be discovered uh, can be usually one of two things as, as a rough rule of thumb is to shock people. And the, But this body was not found in a way that was shocking in the way that it could have been. She's mm-hmm. lying face down, um, et cetera, not the sort of openly exposed gruesomeness. Mm-hmm. Um, so my argument was more that this is person wanting the body to be found, perhaps maybe feeling some sense of remorse. He later said, look, I, yes, I did want the body to be found because I wanted her to get a proper burial. And again, maybe appeasing himself in the same way that he tries to appease himself. It's not, you know, it's your fault that I did this to you. Mm-hmm. Now, I was nice to her. I gave her something to drink. I mm-hmm. left a body where it could be found and she can get a burial. So again, some ways trying to make himself feel better. Yeah. Um, softening for his own perhaps psychological blow mm. what he's done. So I don't really think this was so much about for the victim than it was, was about him trying to make himself feel better. Okay. And possibly minim- give him a, a rationalization yep. were he ever to get into the kind of conversation he had with you where he yep. can, you know, I was trying to do the right thing, but yep. oops, I hit her on you know, the If head I wanted to do oops, something, I, I could have raped actor. her, but I didn't. Yeah. That's not what I was into. Okay. Um, essentially massaging your own guilt is really what you're trying to do. Yeah. Now, let's go back to this question I asked of, of how he got caught, Jared. Mm-hmm. How is he caught? Again, it's just good basic police work. Okay. Um, you know, following up leads, um, phone calls, the cell phone calls. Obviously, they looked in her diary. Who did she have a meeting with? Because she would have written it in that she had a meeting to a, an appointment, etc. So it was primarily uh, the, the cell phones that, that got him into a lot of trouble, him thinking that these old, you know, pay-as-you-go numbers are untraceable. How did you come to conduct the interview in the house, in the bathroom? Yeah. So essentially, um, when um, Pine Pinar arrested him that night, him and his partner went to his house and arrested him. Um, you know, no tactical team of 20 different cops with camouflage. Just two, two detectives went and arrested him. We'll change that when we're doing the reenactments <laughs> on the TV show. Yeah. Okay. And then um, they called in. Uh, she was then a, a senior superintendent, Leonie Russ, who was from the forensics uh, unit, to come and do some more sort of uh, to get involved in the case. And she called me out and said, look, I think it's a good idea to get Gerard to come and interview Jose. Um there was, there was no need for me to testify in court because there was overwhelming evidence against him and uh, mm. in, in, in the case. Uh, so I was asked to come in for that point of view. So very Why, How do you feel about interviewing him in this bathroom as opposed to interviewing him back at the station in, a, in, mm. in your own environment? Um, yeah, I mean, there's always a call as to where do you do the interview, on someone's home turf or on your turf? You know, mm-hmm. Do you want them out of their home environment where they're uncomfortable because it's your interview room versus comfortable in their own spot? Um, and I think that's a case-by-case situation whether you feel one's going to work or not for the other. Um, it's probably the only time I've actually interviewed. So it was also unique because they arrested him at his house and they kept him there while they were busy doing whatever they were doing. And they called me out to the house to interview him. And normally when if I, we were called in, he would already be taken to the station. So you wouldn't mm. be interviewing them necessarily at mm. the actual house. So I think it was a unique conversation, com, uh, consolation of circumstances that kind of played out. Um, like I said, it was my first interview of a murderer. As I said, this would be my first crime scene. I don't think I would do it differently. 
um, if I had that opportunity in that way, he was comfortable. I thought it was obviously make the crime scene very real and live. Yeah. Um, was it essential for him to talk? Did they got him to talk to me? No, I think he probably would have spoken to me whether I was sitting in his lounge or back at the station. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I felt this was um, the opportunity. Also, if he's prepared to speak to you, I th- also think, you know, you give the guy too many hours in between and then he might change his mind and he, <laughs> he doesn't want to talk to you. So if you've got a guy who wants to talk to you, you've got a guy who does confession, you, you go right there with it and you mm-hmm. take it. Yeah. Um, you don't risk that because now maybe we decide, okay, let's not do it here, Jose. Let's go back to the station. That could be an hour or two's time. Yeah. He's had some time to think about it and think, actually, no, I don't want to talk to anybody. So, you know, I'll, I'll take it from whether when I can get that interview, I'll take it as soon as possible. Yeah. Does that have Does it have an implication on whether or not these conversations are, are can be used in the in the in the following court case. Yeah. So so obviously as a policeman if you want to use interviews for potential court purposes you have to give the person their their warnings. So he'd obviously been arrested at that point and given yes. his constitutional warnings. And I did say at the, at the beginning of the interview you know, he doesn't he doesn't have to speak to me it's his choice. And I didn't know it was being recorded. And I didn't know that I was, it's not a confidential uh, conversation. Um, you know, I'm the police and I'm part of the investigation. Mm. Um, could that have been still used as a confession in court if it was being necessary? I think they could have used it. Other situations where, we've, where that has happened. Yeah. Um, but normally, um, interestingly thing when it comes to confessions, if he was to confess to you, a member of the public, automatically that would be admissible in court. Um, oh. As a policeman, I, he, I have to make sure I've given him all these necessary warnings beforehand. Okay. Um, you know, a, but there was just overwhelming evidence against him that it wasn't even necessary for me to testify in court. Uh, an interesting thing at the trial, he insisted on testifying in Portuguese or having a Portuguese interpreter. So everything in the trial had to be interpreted into Portuguese, which I think was him just more screwing us around because no. his English was as good as mine. Uh, he's gone to English-speaking schools. Always these elements of control with yeah, when, when you know, so that really does frustrate killers. the process yeah. because it takes much longer, and you've got to find a Portuguese yeah. interpreter for the whole trial. There's expenses, so again, I just think a big screw around, really. Yeah, um, you know, the one thing that I reflect on with this guy, I mean, you know, we talk about him being smart, being a, a meticulous, neat guy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, it raises the question: Why is he not thinking a little bit more about mm-hmm. if he goes ahead and kills someone? How does he tidy it up to get away with it? But clearly here, a continuing ignorance to, you know, he's talking about the fact that he's got another phone, so he's not going to get caught because it's a pay-as-you-go number, mm. whatever. Um, again, there's always seems to be an element of this kind of not enough planning, not enough yeah. thinking. So this myth of the really, really super intelligent uh, killer, mm. it's, it's, it's all too often that that's a rare, seems to be a yeah. rare occurrence where these guys – are caught because of their ignorance to yeah. kind of you know and, and and watching tv programs you know tv is not reality yeah um even in documentaries you know we don't even like here i'm not telling you all the little secrets of what the police do and how how they catch people and and what they can do forensically um so you can read up about it you can try and research it but to do it in reality it's always very very different yeah, to yeah. try and clean up your crime scene to dispose of a body Little things you didn't think of <clears throat> pop up because you haven't done it before. Yeah. Would this guy have done it again? Why yeah. don't we answer that question yeah. first by listening to what he had to mm. say on the matter? Ironic enough, you know, the day I decided to come, played enough games, you know, you guys can knock me on my door mm. because you were able to trace me on my, my phones. But you were right, yeah. Um, you did or not put her there to be found. Uh, I've had a hundred and one other places that I could have 
born in Franja, got mm. rid of my parents. And um, yeah, I was careless. You know, I, I didn't, there was no planning involved. You know, I just carried on playing the fool with my phone. You know. So I didn't think about being mm. traced. And, and I thought, well, they're using a fake name and uh, changing numbers. Uh, and not inviting anybody here, you know, so nobody knows where I stay. So. Um, yeah, look, what would have happened if she was like all the other ladies that I just full played the games, um, she would have climbed in the car, driven back, and I would have phoned her the next day and said, Look, I'm not interested, mm -hmm. you know. But um, for some reason, this lady just. Uh, just uh, kind of rules wherever she comes from. She was much probably uh, king of the house or king of the hill or whatever you want to call it. You know. It's probably uh, dominated men or, and she just picked the wrong guy. And in a way, I'm glad you guys got me because I, I, I was afraid that I might do something stupid. Um, that, that that has crossed my mind. You know. do something again? Yeah, I heard somebody just because they say the wrong things, something like that. Um, but yeah, for a split second, I, I cut away all emotions and feelings. You know, I just thought, well, fuck you. You know, that's that's your attitude. I'll teach you something. Yeah, and, and look, I've cooperated with you guys. Um, as you see, I didn't even bother hiding the evidence. <laughs> you know, this has happened how long ago? Months ago. And uh, I, in a way, thought maybe one day someone will come and pick me up. Uh, if I wanted to get away with it, I, first of all, I wouldn't keep the evidence in my garage. <laughs> how do you feel about all this that's happened now? How do I feel? Like what, what happened um, and what's going to happen now and with the whole process now that the cops have got you? Well, now that the cops have got me... Uh, you seem quite know, uh, at peace, calm, and so you've been cooperative, which is a great help, obviously. I have been cooperative because I think being uncooperative is more stupid, um, you know. Um, they got to me because they must have traced me, <laughs> you know. Um, and yeah, if I was a master criminal, if I wanted to make crime my hobby or passion or whatever you want to call it, uh, maybe I would have been good at it, I would have wiped my tracks. Mm. But that was never <laughs> the intention, you know. Um, it's something that happened that shouldn't have happened. And um, yeah, call it rage, call it... I don't know what what you what do you call it, you know, this thing I have inside of me of just don't thinking twice about doing something. Mm -hmm. you know, it's something I've been afraid of it myself, you know, because I think I've always thought if, if if you really push me hard enough, I will if I have an opportunity, you know, I'll get rid of you. Okay, um, what's interesting here is it feels very. A lot of con like he's contradicting himself constantly, mm. saying yes I would, no I wouldn't. I never thought I was going to do this. I didn't. Th if she just come along and be nice to me, she would have gotten a car and driven home again at the end of the mm. day. Um, 
But then in the same breath, he's saying, I'm glad you guys caught me because I could have done this again. And I think it is trial. He even said that um, he sees himself as a serial killer because he would have done this again, okay. if I recall correctly. Yeah. So, again, that's my concerns. We have trial runs leading into something and we end up with a psychologically motivated murder. I mean, that's, again, just good police work. They caught him after the first one. So I'm quite comfortable to say that, you know, he should be viewed as someone – who is a serial murderer in terms of how we're going to manage him for the future and the risks that he might pose. Yeah, yeah. Um, he figured out a way to get a particular profile of person isolated and available in a space that he was in control of. Um, and that's evident throughout. Through, yeah. through. So although he's constantly trying to minimize and mm-hmm. say, oh, no, but I didn't rape or no, but, you know, I wouldn't a have. Nice guy if, to she'd, her. if she'd been nice to me, I would have been nice to her, et cetera, et cetera. The fact is, if you look at the progression, he's gone from, you know, just being incognito and changing his name. He's talked about how there were different types of types of women that he he liked or was attracted to mm. or wasn't attracted to. He's, a very, he's now got himself in a situation where he's getting that type of profile, a female alone in his house where he can control. So absolutely, this guy, he may say that he didn't intend to, but everything points to the fact that he intended he's to. He's walking down that particular pathway. I mean, just another thing here where he says, I was probably more scared than her after he hit her. I mean, it's like this again, you're trying to really rationalize away. Um, It also demonstrates a massive lack of empathy here. So Mm. from a psychological profile, has this guy been – has a psychological profile been done on him? And, you know, what are some of the characteristics that maybe would lead to a particular diagnosis? I don't really think there's anything from a psychological diagnosis. Um, You know, he had a a very normal background. He wasn't, you know, committing crimes. That kind of, in a way, rules out the psychopath angle of it. Um, I don't know if he would have had a proper psychological profile. I think it's pretty much his choice in prison whether he wants to mm. see a psychologist, um, what programs he will be participating in. And he's probably been a model prisoner like many of these individuals are. And he's a smart guy, computer guy. He's probably you know, helping half DCS staff with their computers. Um, so, yeah, so last I saw him, as I said, was probably 2004 um, at Pretoria Central Prison. You know, at the time, he was I think he was convicted about June 2004, and he got a life sentence plus uh, – 18 years, Um, you know, with all of these constitutional court judgments, you know, he might very well be up for parole very, very soon. If not, I don't know if he's still in prison, to be honest with you. What are your what what I mean, this is for this is obviously quite a memorable case for you because Mm -hmm. it's the first like you say, it's your first crime scene. It's your first interview with a with a killer. Um, I, I, I see a lot of the the traits and characteristics of a of of your serial killer, like you say, but what is what are the standouts for you in this case? Yeah, I think, like you said, because it was one of my first crime scene that I attended, um, um, first suspect interview. I mean, I obviously interviewed serial murderers in prison mm-hmm. who were already convicted. Um, I think again, it, what stands out for me is that from a teaching point is the the whole trial run process yeah. and the uniqueness to have this guy talking about what he's done, what was going through his mind. Um, even if he's using his little justifications and minimize, that's fine because yeah. that's what we want to s- understand how these people see and think about and describe their crimes. Yeah. So that, that for me was a big teaching case that I often refer to this when I speak of, you know, when I'm doing training to various people. I, I, I still to this day talk about this particular case for those very aspects. Yeah. All right. Well, before we wrap up the episode, let's hear one last time from Jose 
himself um, as, a, as a bit of a final thought. Are you in a sense partly relieved that, that, that this has turned out this way this evening? I am because I left her body there for the reason so she could be found. And in a way I wish I was found. Um, look, let me put it to you this way. If I did it with intent or pleasure, you know, I wouldn't be here today. I would have bolted. Yeah, look, this mischievous game of mine that I had of maybe it was just an escape to escape boredom and make my life make it a bit more exciting. By but um, it just uh, backfired. You know? There was lots of women when I did nothing to them. Some were in here, they walked out, but still alive today. Uh, yeah, that's itchy. Uh, look, I'm not proud of what I've done. But, um, yeah, I kind of thought this would resolve you guys to get me and I can. Uh, look, I need help, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, a normal person, you know, I might look like one, but believe me, deep inside of me, uh, I have nothing inside of me. Sure. Um, sure, yeah, to, if only we'd had cameras in that bathroom with you, Gerard, when, we were, when you were interviewing him, because mm. what a unique opportunity to speak to a killer at the scene of the crime it must have been just an incredible experience. Let's wrap up the episode then. Um, thanks, guys, for um, tuning in once again. Of course, you can check us out on uh, YouTube, uh, www.youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Profiler Africa. Um, get on our social media pages as well at Profiler Africa. We're on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. We're going to end this episode with uh, Jose De Silva reflecting on on his future and um, what's to come for him. Thank you, Gerard. Um, we'll leave it to Jose to wrap up this episode we'll see you again and pleasant dreams you asked me earlier on about what about the future you know what's gonna what do I want or and um, I don't really have a clue you know it's, it's the first time I've never in my life dreamed that I would be in this mess you know that I put myself in you know, Maybe in a way I think maybe it's better because you know, what other future do, do I have? Just carrying on being this weird person, you know. Um, yeah, look, basically, you know, look, I don't know what's going to happen, you know. Um, um, but, you know, if I've got an idea what, what do you do to people like me that are just so-called normal and not so normal at the same time, you know.